uh, I see people visiting and some people are new. Uh, great to have you here with us. Uh, I'm just back from uh, three weeks, not here, uh, two weeks of holidays kind of interrupted by my father-in-law's death and so uh, thank you to all the people who've uh, sent cards and flowers and meals. It's been very, very lovely and well received. Um, the kids are a little bit sick this morning so Alison's uh, home with them uh, at the moment. Uh, but imagine if instead of me returning from holidays, a bona fide prophet of the Lord walked in and took the pulpit uh, and said, Hear the word of the Lord. God says, I hate your church services. The singing, it's like noise in my ears, an annoying mosquito. Uh, I hate what you do. I hate your communion services. I dislike your morning teas. I detest the cakes. The sermons are rubbish. And worst of all, I will not ever hear your prayers. I refuse to listen to them. Uh, well, what might you do? You might think, well, that's a madman and tackle him and get the wardens on him, uh, although they're pretty weedy and they're not all here. Uh, so, <laughs> you know, would they get rid of him? Uh, what if you're convinced he actually was the prophet of the Lord? Come and what have we done? Why won't God listen to our prayers? They'd be pretty chilling and horrible words to be told plainly from God that he was turning his face from you and he would never listen to your cries. Some of you might feel like that that's your life already, that he's not. But imagine being told that by God. I will not listen to you. Well, that's how the prophet Isaiah opens with his vision addressed to the Old Testament people of God. Why would God say that? What had they done? And what was going to happen now? And could there be any way of turning things around? Is there a way that God would start listening to them again? Well, we'll come back to some of those questions in a few moments, but also we'll be coming back to them over this whole term because we're going to spend the next two months uh, looking at the book of Isaiah. And church, now it's a huge book, 66 chapters, many pages. And so we're only going to be dipping in and looking at highlights. But I want to spend a couple of minutes, why we would start the year, we're all fired up and ready to come back, why come back to such misery and such, you know, such a condemnation like that? Why are we doing it? Well, when Jesus began his public ministry on earth, we're told in Luke's Gospel in chapter 4 that uh, he went to the synagogue in Nazareth, his hometown, and as a visiting teacher, uh, they invited him to come up and read a passage from the Bible and, and give a little talk on it, a homily for the day. And he turned to the passage which says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me to preach good news to the poor. He'll bind up the brokenhearted and set the prisoners free. And it comes from... Isaiah 61. And it's about this person that Isaiah, with 700 years before Jesus, predicted who would come in the future. And Jesus reads from this passage in a scroll and he hands it back to the attendants. Uh, he gives it back to them and we're told, the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began by saying to them, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. And basically Jesus is saying, you want to know who I am? You want to know what I'm about? Well, uh, I've, what I've come to do, read Isaiah. Indeed, there's an occasion in the book of Acts where there's a man on his way home, quite a rich man. He's riding in his chariot on his way back from work. He's an Ethiopian man, in fact, uh, and he happens to have with him a copy of the scroll of Isaiah. It's much like someone reading the Bible on a train on the way home from work. 
uh, and he's having a lot of trouble understanding it. And a gentleman by the name of Philip, who's a Christian, uh, sort of is jogging alongside the chariot, looks in, sees that he's uh, got this scroll open and he's scratching his head and he says, you want some help with that? And he says, all right, hop on board. So he climbs up on the chariot and we're told that uh, beginning with that very passage, Philip explained it to them and that day the Ethiopian man became a follower of Jesus and from him the gospel spread out into Africa and it was Isaiah's prophecy which was integral to it all. And so whether we're followers of Jesus Christ already and we want to grow in our knowledge and understand what Jesus, who Jesus is and what he's about uh, or whether we're people who are still trying to figure it out whether to follow him or not, uh, this book is integral. Apart from the Psalms, Isaiah is the most quoted book from the Old Testament in the New. Quoted something like 60 times uh, in all range of contexts, in the Gospels, in the Book of Acts, throughout the letters written to the different churches, even in the Book of Revelation, they all quote Isaiah. And so if we want to understand the New Testament, we've really got to get our minds around this prophet. Uh, he's sometimes called the Prince of Prophets, uh, and he's the Prince of Prophets because of the vastness of his message it's vast in its length. It's the second longest book in the Old Testament with a whopping 66 chapters. Um, but it's also a book that's vast in its vision. Speaking of things that were current in his day, uh, things that were prophetic and were fulfilled in Jesus uh, and in the apostles, but he even spoke of things which are still yet to come to pass, things which we are waiting for God to do, things yet to happen the final coming of God's kingdom, the recreation of the heavens and the earth. And so Isaiah paints a picture of reality that we've got to find our place in uh, because it's not simply a picture of the past, of how things were, um, but it's a picture of how things are now, that Jesus has come, and a picture of how things will be. And so both the warnings, and there are some dire warnings in Isaiah, and the promises, and there's great promises of hope and of love from God. They are both for us. And so let's get into it and set the scene. Isaiah chapter 1 and verse 1. The vision concerning Judah and Jerusalem that Isaiah son of Amos saw during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Well, notice when it's set, though the book's described as one vision, it's actually a compilation of all Isaiah was told and prophesied about over something like 55 years during the reigns of these four kings of Judah. Now, hopefully you've got a timeline in your handouts on the way in, and if you have a look at that, Isaiah was having his visions and writing somewhere in that purple band that's in the middle there of the uh, the diagram. You got it there? Was it handed out? All good? All right. Some people have it. Uh, the rest of you, there's some purple on a page. A splash of colour in otherwise dull. Uh, boards. No, anyways, uh, there you go. Uh, so he was going for those 55 years or so in that purple band in the middle there. And specific events mark the passage of time throughout the book. Uh, the death of King Uzziah is mentioned in chapter 6, uh, which was 739 BC. The invasion of Judah by Assyria in chapter 36, which took place around 700 BC in Hezekiah's reign. Uh, we know it was compiled after 681 BC, 
because the book records the death of King Sennacherib, uh, the king of Assyria, by the hands of his sons who murdered him um, in his temple. Uh, but the whole thing is described as one vision, one vision, one word from God. It stands as a whole, one thing that we have to know from God in its entirety. And this vision we're told here in verse 1 concerns Judah and Jerusalem. That is, if you know your Old Testament history, it focuses on the southern kingdom. Uh, That's who it's addressed to. See, over 200 years before, the nation of Israel had been ripped in two by this uh, horrible civil war. Okay, And one had been a, a prosperous unified nation made up of 12 tribes was ripped in two and uh, there was the northern kingdom that had 10 tribes and there was Judah and Benjamin down in the south and it was just referred to as Judah. The northern kingdom retained the name Israel and the southern kingdom was called Judah. Uh, In the north, things had gone from bad to worse over those couple of hundred years. Uh, If you read through the book of uh, 1 Kings and 2 Kings, how many of the kings of Israel are described as good guys. Anyone know? In Israel, the north. We've got a guess of two? None. None. They are all wicked, evil degenerates, okay, who God hates. And the nation in the north is about to be destroyed by the time this is written. In the south, in Judah, things were only slightly better. Uh, At least they'd had a couple of okay kings, Uh, And Uzziah and Jotham, the first two who are mentioned here, were two of those. Uh, They were good guys. They loved God, but they were very weak kings. Uh, They loved God, but they failed to do anything about the rampant idolatry that was happening in the nation. People had set up their own shrines and they were going up onto the high hills. Uh, Well, the book of Kings describes them the same way. They did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, But the high places, however, were not removed. The people continued to offer sacrifices and burn incense there. That is, the the worship of the gods of the nations which had kind of been adopted and absorbed into uh, God's people, the worship of Baal, the detestable god of the Philistines, the, the worship of Asherah, the fertility goddess, who was worshipped by mass orgies and things like that, Uh, the worship of Molech, Uh, where uh, people sacrificed their sons in the flames of the statue of the furnace of Moloch. They burned their children to death to worship him. They had all been allowed to continue and flourish. But then came King Ahaz, whose reign as king, uh, the first half of the book Isaiah concerns. And Ahaz was an absolute mongrel. Uh, he was a politically savvy guy but a degenerate man who we read about in 1 Kings 16. It says this, Unlike David, Ahaz did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord his God. He walked in the ways of the kings of Israel, the north, and even sacrificed his son in the fire. That is, he, he killed his son in worship of Molech. Following the detestable ways of the nations the Lord had driven out before the Israelites, he offered sacrifices and burn incense at the high places on the hilltops and under every spreading tree. If it could be worshipped, Ahaz did it. Uh, if there was a foreign god he hadn't heard of, he'd bring that one into the party too. And, and on top of that, he, he did deals with, Ju- with um, Judah's enemies. 
He sold the nation out to Assyria at one point. He ransacked the temple of the Lord of all its treasures. Uh, He desecrated the temple by building a replica of the altar that was in the capital of Assyria to the Assyrian gods in the middle of the temple. Uh, And to top it all off, he was a supreme liar throughout it, pretending it was all done in the name of Yahweh his God. He kept up his temple appearances and sacrifices to Yahweh, pretending to all and to himself that he was a good and faithful forthright Jew. And the final king whose reign Isaiah compiled his vision throughout was Hezekiah. And Hezekiah was a superstar. He was was a standout among the kings of Judah. He not only did what was right in the eyes of the Lord as David had done, but he went to town on the idolatry of the nation. He started ripping down all the shrines and ordering the troops to go out and destroy the high places. And I presume he was influenced by the prophet Isaiah who stood side by side with him during his reign. And we'll find that out a bit later in the book rather than denounce him as Isaiah had done with Ahaz. But Hezekiah doesn't turn up till halfway through. And so the book begins with this chilling and stark word to Judah and Jerusalem. When you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Even if you offer many prayers, I will not listen. And so it comes as an almighty warning, a slap in the face to anyone who would claim to be one of God's people, to all who would point to their religious devotion, their church attendance, their sacrifices, the abundance of their prayers, their their five-hour quiet times, uh, with the terrifying voice of God saying, I'm not listening. I will not hear you. And so I think we better hear God's condemnation lest we fall into the same trap as they did. Well, the picture of Isaiah 1, which is kind of the introduction to the book, okay, it sets the scene. It, it's a court scene, a court case. You can imagine uh, being in a courtroom, watching what's going on with the, the, the judge high up in the... I don't, what's that thing called that the judge... Is it a pulpit? I don't know. Is it a, it's not the dock. That's what the prisoner sits in. But he's sitting up there at the bench. Uh, and there's the jury, and there's the person on trial. And God is sitting as the judge, and he also acts as the prosecution. Uh, There's a jury, there are charges, and there's a verdict. But then there's an astonishing twist in the tale of the court case. Uh, The trial begins with the bailiff calling the jury to attend to the accusations and hear the evidence. It's almost like the bailiff saying, Hear ye, hear ye, this court is in session. Verse 2. Hear, O heavens, listen, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. The court is in session. And, And the whole universe is called upon to come and bear witness or to be the jury. This is not some petty dispute that could be settled in a local court. Uh, This is not even a court case of national significance that has to go before the Supreme Court. This is a case of cosmic importance which has to be heard in the presence of the whole of the heavens and the earth. Uh, It shows just how high the stakes are in this confrontation between God and his people. Uh, In fact, we find out as it goes on that the welfare of the entire universe is dependent 
on the outcome of this court case. It also foreshadows the climax to which the whole vision of Isaiah is going to move by the end, the entire recreation of the heavens and the earth. You know, they're called to bear witness and hear about why the heavens and the earth will be destroyed and have to be remade. But what exactly are the charges? Sure, the kings weren't much chop, but you know, Uzziah and Jotham were okay. Uh, what was happening in the nation as a whole? Well, here's the charges read to the jury. I reared children and brought them up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows his master, the donkey his owner's manger, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Ah, sinful nature, uh, nation, a people loaded with guilt, a brood of evildoers, children given to corruption. They have forsaken the Lord. They have spurned the Holy One of Israel and turned their backs on him. And I don't know if you can hear the agony in God's voice. Because you know, like us Christians now, Jerusalem and Judah are called God's own children. Uh, you might recall the Exodus when Moses had, had led them out of slavery in Egypt and they come to Mount Sinai and he had declared that Israel is my son. He adopted them into his family out of slavery. And, and what had they done with their freedom? What had they done with their new status as children of God? Well, they spat in the face of their father who reared them and brought them up. And I don't know if you know families where that's happened. I don't know if you've experienced it in your own family, whether as a parent, a child, growing up and saying, I wish you were dead. I couldn't give a stuff about you. Maybe you've done that with your parents, but it's horrible. It's disgusting. It's not right. I mean, you could understand it if dad was a violent alcoholic who just, you know, abused everyone and things. But this is God who has only shown love and care for his children, who has given them a home and luxury and blessed them. God has been a father to him, a good father, but they, like headstrong, ungrateful children, have rebelled against him. Now, the details are not given until later on, but... It's kind of like a national version of the prodigal son in Jesus' story. You know, I don't care that you're my father. I wish you were dead. I just want your stuff. You can get stuff. You can die for all I care. Give it to me now. I'm going. And it's not just been a one-off thing for Jerusalem and Judah. This has been years, decades, centuries of abusing God's grace and love. And God, as a good father, has, has dealt out discipline over those years in the hope that they might see the error of the ways, that they might you know, come good, grow to maturity and, and turn back to him. And that also is part of the charge that he lays against them. Uh, the images there in verses 5 and 6 and the, the, the stark description of the condition that they are now in, the, the burnt out cities, the devastated countryside and, and the capital Zion, isolated, under siege, it, Every time they've rebelled in the past, invasion and devastation of this order have happened. But, but I wonder if Isaiah wrote the introduction last and he's sitting there maybe just after the, the siege of Jerusalem, which he'd sat through, as he'd seen 180,000 soldiers camped outside the capital who said, you're dead meat, 
surrender now or we will kill you. And they had been forced to desperate circumstances with the food shortages and things. Uh, they had plundered and pillaged and burnt their way across the nation and they had surrounded the city for months, maybe years, trying to starve them out. And it's, it's not theoretical stuff. This is a very present and painful reality. The cities are burnt out. The countryside has been devastated. And you still won't listen to God. Well, the jury's been addressed, the charges have been laid, and now it's the turn of the accused as God turns directly to speak to them, to Jerusalem and its rulers, who he compares to Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, I don't know if you know Sodom and Gomorrah, but they didn't fare too well in the Old Testament. Okay, They were the uh, archetypical enemies of God who God destroyed with fire and brimstone. He just burnt them out of existence and rained fire on them. And he says, you are like them. But what have they done to deserve that kind of condemnation? Well, God specifies the charges. Uh, they have divorced their religion and their worship from true righteousness. Okay, They're looking like true blue Jews because they do all the temple sacrifice and things, but it's like an apple, you know, a nice juicy red apple, and you go to bite it, and inside it's just worms, and it's gone brown and mouldy, and it's disgusting, and you want to spit it out of your mouth. Looks good on the outside, terrible on the inside, rotten to the core. They looked religious and pious with their sacrifices and prayers, their temple worship, but underneath the pious exterior, they held contempt for God. They held contempt for those who could not defend themselves in the community. Uh, look at verse 10. He says, Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Listen to the law of our God, you people of Gomorrah. The multitude of your sacrifices, what are they to me, says the Lord? I have more than enough of burnt offerings, of uh, rams and the fat of fattened animals. I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. And that's shocking because God had ordered the sacrifice of those animals so that sins could be forgiven and they have a relationship with God. And he says, I'm sick of it. When you come to appear before me, who has asked this of you, this trampling of my courts? Stop bringing meaningless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. New moon, Sabbaths and commentators, I cannot bear your worthless assemblies. Your new moon festivals and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of burden bearing them. When you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Even when you offer many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash and make yourselves clean. Take your evil dudes out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Encourage the oppressed. Defend the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. Now, ripping off those who cannot defend themselves. Uh, later in the chapter, he, he raises uh, issues of bribery and corruption in the government, uh, in the officials. He says neighbours are stealing from one another. And he comes to this issue of, of the worship of the foreign gods in the high places, which has just gone on unabated despite Uzziah and Jotham's you know, love for God. Um, and... He lays out more details in the chapters to come. I'm just going to read you a bit of a list of some of the things he says about the nation. 
Uh, see if they sound familiar. Chapter 5, verse 8. Woe to you who add house to house and join field to field till no space is left and you live alone in the land. Or verse uh, 11 of chapter 5. Woe to those who rise up early in the morning to run after their drinks or who stay up late at night till they are inflamed with wine. They have harps and lyres at their banquets, pipes and timbrels and wine, but they have no regard for the deeds of the Lord, no respect for the work of his hands. All about chapter 5, verse 18. Woe to those who draw sin along with cords of deceit. You know, they're, they're sinning in secret and they're lying about and And wickedness says with cart ropes to those who say, Oh, let God hurry. Let him hasten his work so we may see it. Let the plan of the Holy One of Israel, let it approach, let it come to you so we can know it, what God's doing. They really don't want to know. It's sarcasm. They, they think God is blind and helpless. Uh, they think no one can see the evil they do in secret, let alone God. Or 5 verse 20. Woe to those who call good uh, evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. And, uh, I mean, I could just think of some recent things that have come to mind. Think of Christopher Hitchens, uh, uh, one of the atheist leaders who's been campaigning, I mean, he's died now a couple of years ago, but uh, in one of his last speeches, he gave a violent and vehement diatribe about how the Ten Commandments of God were the most evil things that had ever been written in the history of man. And he uses his philosophy to show how do not murder is an evil command and do not commit adultery is wrong. Uh, or, or the way that sexual deviance is not only accepted but celebrated. Or the way the proud and the ruthless are praised and worshipped and everyone aspires to be. No one wants to be the down and outer from Macquarie Fields. No, we want to be James Packer who's got Mariah Carey on his arm even though he's destroyed the lives of millions of this nation in making his wealth. And on and on it goes. 5 verse 21. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and clever in their own sight. Woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine and champion of mixing drinks, who acquit the guilty for a bribe, but deny justice to the innocent. Does any of that sound familiar? It sounds a lot to me like Australia Day. And Ingleburn is no exception. This is the injustice. This is what is being ignored and covered up in Jerusalem. They might not seem some of those things to be that dramatic to us, but to God they represent the great evil in the hearts of his people. These are the charges that God brings against his children who are supposed to be different, who are doing their religious devotions and turning up for the sacrifices and feasts and pretending with God that they were on his side when they really couldn't care less. These are the charges that God calls upon the very heavens and the earth to hear and bear witness to. And there's no defence that Jerusalem can offer, no words which can make it all right. And so you would think, after all that he said, that it would lead God the spurned father, God the righteous judge, to hand down a death sentence. I mean, where do you go from that? But what will the verdict be? And this is one of the most astonishing things that God has ever uttered. Verse 18. 
Got it there? Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are as red as crimson, they shall be like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you will eat the best of the land. But if you resist and rebel, you will be devoured by the sword. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. And it's an ultimatum. Don't get me wrong. But surely this is one of the greatest expressions of God's grace in the entire Bible. It's vivid, isn't it? Your sins are a scarlet. You know, it's like the blood-stained shirt of a warrior. Uh, the shame and the guilt pouring out of their wounds. Now, blood is on their hands, literally, as they've destroyed lives. And their sins are as blood to God. The guilt of the accused has been absolutely established. But at the very point when judgment is expected, grace intervenes. God, the judge of the universe, makes them an offer which is truly amazing in its generosity. Nothing less than total pardon. It can all be wiped clean. Though your sins are as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. What they'd wrongly tried to achieve by religious observance is now freely offered on the one condition, that they cease their rebellion. The alternative, certain destruction. Uh, they can come back to God freely and be pardoned and eat the good of the land or they can be eaten by the sword. The choice is theirs. They don't deserve it, but God is gracious. But even so, he's not to be trifled with. Now, how can that be? How... How can their sins be made white as snow when all that they have done, when they are drenched in the blood of their crimes? Is God going to pervert justice to acquit the guilty? Surely that's the crime they're accused of, perverting justice. How can they be forgiven? How can it just all go away? How is it possible? Well, you'll have to come back for the next two months to find out. <laughs> but suffice to say, the answer is tied up with two mysterious strangers who the book of Isaiah is about. One who only gets brief glimpses in the first half of the book. He just pops up now and then. One who is called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, one who, who will rule the world, not just Judah and Jerusalem, but, but gather the world under his rule and rule in love and kindness and with justice, who will bring peace. The other mysterious stranger, the one the second half of the book is about, is one who's declared to be a servant of God, but who suffers greatly. In fact, he's going to suffer so badly, he's going to be bashed, and abused and mocked and scorned and so badly that people will be ashamed to look at him. He'll be so disfigured. But he's also the one who will have the Spirit of the Lord on him to preach good news to the poor, to bind up the brokenhearted and who will set the prisoners free. And what perhaps even Isaiah could not see is that those two strangers would be one and the same person, the Lord Jesus Christ, King and Saviour. 
In him there would be forgiveness, but only to those who will turn from their evil and have their sins washed clean by him because of his mercy. Father, we thank you for your word and for this prophecy 700 years before the Lord Jesus that speaks of him and speaks of now and speaks of the future. We pray that it might engage our hearts over this term, that will come with excitement to learn what you have in store and how it is that Jesus can bring forgiveness and wash our sins clean. We pray that whether we come now as followers of him already or as those who are still working it out, that you might show us the truth of Jesus, the King and the Servant, and that we might be right with you. Please help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.